Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello, and welcome again to the Hobcast Book Show. It is show number 41, and we are delighted. That means next week it's the meaning of life. I guess so. <laughs> well, we'll see. We're delighted to have Judy Dakin as our guest this week. and She's been on the podcast before, but this time we've been to see her in person. And that's because Waylon Babes, her collection of five ghostly stories tied to a famous area of woodland in Norfolk, have been released by us uh, last week. And so we'll be talking in depth about things that rustle in the night. And things that rustle in the day too. Yeah, absolutely. Because there was rustling. There was, there was. So delighted to see her. We're just back actually. Um, we're recording this on a Monday morning, which is unusual for us. Normally we have the podcast up and running. So for those of you who have, well, been anticipating this week's show, we are sorry that it's been a little later, but there is a reason. We drove over to Suffolk, which is uh, over 200 miles away. Um, for the weekend, and we spent a wonderful weekend with one of our authors, Lynn Laversha, whose Blood Notes is coming out in November. Yes. And I have to look around to you. Yeah, no, 23rd sure of November, to be exact. <laughs> yeah, we're really looking forward to that. Uh, we went to her wonderful home in Southwold, and to, to say it has the best view I've ever seen of any house um, is an understatement. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, overlooking the salt marshes. Oh, it was beautiful. And it it felt like we were on holiday for two days. I mean, really Lynn did. was an, an amazing host. She was very kind and she looked after us very well, didn't she? And um, you fell in love while we were there. I so. did. I Although did. I'm, not, I'm not too jealous, actually, because I fell in love too. Or with Lynn? <laughs> no. With Bertie. Bertie, wonderful. Uh, Labrador that she has, eight-year-old Labrador. Um, where we became fast friends, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, we did. So it was quite funny because last night we got back and we had dinner and then we were sort of both flopped in separate locations. You were watching the Formula One and I was reading. And we just had that sort of feeling of there's something missing and it was a sort of being able to just put your hand down and, and ruffle a dog's ears or be licked or... Stroke tummies and yeah. things like that. Yeah, no. It... And we could have done it to each other, but we didn't. <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> No, Bertie, thank you so much for uh, making our weekend. And Lynn, of course, um, it really was fantastic. And great to get away. We had some good weather. And um, I love Southwood. I, I, I used to go there as a kid, uh, as a teenager. And I, I've lo always loved it. It was and a I spectacular paddled. place. I actually got to paddle in the sea and it wasn't too cold. It was lovely. Yeah, it was perfect. So we've had a good weekend. But uh, after driving back, um, yeah, I did about 250 <laughs> miles yesterday and the defeat of Man United um, by Liverpool thrashing. Uh, I wasn't in the mood to record a podcast. I was too tired, quite simply. I'd hit the wall. So he zoned in front of cars going, eong, eong. Yeah, that just kind of felt <laughs> right. <laughs> Even if the result was, uh, wasn't the one I wanted. Anyway, uh, welcome to the show. So uh, we'll be speaking to Judy Dakin a little later. 
and uh, we ought to get on with the news. But first well, of all, we need to introduce ourselves. I was just about to say that. So, we are Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. Together we run Hobart Books and we are UK independent publishers of the following genres. Crime. Mysteries. Thrills. And suspense. I'm doing Formula One. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm impressed. Well, that's the old Formula One when they actually had engines that, that made a noise. Well, they do now, but for a period they, they disappeared. The, Are you telling noise. me that the is a thing of the past? Not so much, but it's not as exciting when they had V10 engines in. They they sounded fantastic. I didn't know that. No, no they've got these hybrid engines at the moment and they're not quite as exciting. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the one thing is if you ever go to a Formula One race uh, or uh, a historic car event, what you don't appreciate on television, apart from the speed, uh, is the impact of one of these cars with their amazing aerodynamics going past you and the pressure. Of oh, the whoosh. The wo- Well, the feeling you have in your chest. Oh. It's like a huge reverberation, the impact. It's like a wall hitting you, a blast wall of air displaced by these cars. I don't think I'd like that. No, you probably wouldn't. No, <laughs> no you're not one for you're I'm not a one. For, worse. You're not one for noise, are you? So um, no, that would be that would be difficult. Let's get on with the news then. And we've picked out a couple of stories this week, which one of which is so spectacular. Um, we're going to do this one in a second, but um, I just love it. Yeah, on, on so many it's, levels. It's, got, it's, it's, it's multi-leveled, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's worth not... a movie in itself. So that, that, <laughs> that you know, we're selling this big. And the other one is is more of sort of publishing trend kind of uh, yeah. industry insider news but the story we're about to give you uh, you may have seen this but uh, would that British literary prizes offer the sort of prize that these guys <laughs> won so um, the story is it's set in Spain and uh, the author the author name was Carmen Mola now Carmen uh, apparently a female novelist won one million Euros, which is a lot of money. It's an awful lot. So it's eight hundred and forty thousand quid. Um, in a that's a Sp- Spanish literary prize, uh, which is the, I think it's probably the biggest one, uh, probably in the world. I mean, you know, Booker <laughs> Prize is about fifty grand. So um, you can see that this really is a huge deal. Uh, Mola, who was published by Penguin Random House in Spain, was awarded the Planeta Prize at a ceremony in Barcelona uh, last week for historical thriller, The Beast. While Mola was known to be a pseudonym, supposedly for a professor and a mother to maintain her anonymity, it came as a surprise for audiences when three men ascended the podium to claim the award. (laughs) The writers behind Mola were, in fact, Jorge Diaz, Augustin Martinez and Antonio Maquero, all established Spanish television scriptwriters in their 40s and 50s. The Financial Times reported that on winning the award, Diaz said, Carmen Mola is not, like all the lies we've been telling, a university professor. We are three friends who one day, four years ago, decided to combine our talents to tell a story. The men said they chose the name by chance and for fun, without thinking about the gender of the name or the possible implications. Mercado told El País, I don't know if a female pseudonym would sell more than a male one. I don't have the faintest idea, but I doubt it. We didn't hide behind a woman. We hid behind a name. However, the author page for Mola 
on their agent's website includes a black and white photo of a woman with a back turned to the camera. The revelation that Mola is in fact three men is particularly unusual as in the past many women published under male pseudonyms in an attempt to get published <laughs> due to the biases against female writers. Wow. So that, that's the one level, isn't it? It's it's a level of uh, does the gender of the author influence um, the perception of um, the readers as to, um, the, you know, the novel and, and its value? I mean, that's quite an old fashioned uh, way to look at it. Like, that's why George Eliot wrote as a man. Yeah. So that's that's just the one level. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the gender debate is another level. Mm-hmm. Three men writing as a woman. So the readers presumably, well, they did. They made the assumption it was a woman. It might not have been the woman of that name. Yeah. And well, they obviously did a very good job. They won a prize. Well, uh, <laughs> some prize, my God, 840,000 quid. Well, I mean, just astonishing, isn't it? I mean, the fact that there's that sort of money in the <laughs> an on offer for a prize. Then there's the whole... Yeah, hiding behind a pseudonym. Now, I mean, we've discussed this. If I wrote a romance, would I write as a woman? I mean, would I have a woman's pen name? Um, or would I do the the thing that so many people do, which is to put your initials so that it's ambiguous? AJ Hobart. AJ Hobart, <laughs> as opposed to Adrian Hobart or anything else that I might be. Adrienne Hobart. Um, you know, J.K. Rowling. Lots of examples of people using their initials yeah to slightly mask it's a very common thing isn't it yeah just uh, to... to leave an ambiguity there uh, and indeed you know uh we, some of our submissions this month uh, are under pseudonyms yes as well. that's true yes that's true Pe- uh, sometimes you can understand why because you know the, the, they've got names that would win any game of scrabble <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh yeah i mean it's 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 astonishing. I mean, I, it would have been wonderful to be in that audience. But the, the other thing that I find interesting, so three men wrote it, so they've all got their own voice, their own style, but that was obviously not picked up by anybody who read mm-hmm. it. You know, it, it, it's not easy to, to co-write a book. No, we, we've. I mean, I, I I know of well, I've narrated some books which have been withdrawn because the two writers fell out. Yeah, no, it does happen, and also you, there are subtleties in the style. I mean, a good example is two of our um, authors have co-written a short story for the Christmas anthology, and I think I know which out of the two which bits are by each of them. I just it's subtle, it's subtle, but I can tell. But that's but then I I know that it was written by two people, so I'm right. looking out for it. But yeah. still, it's it is interesting, isn't it, that they they got away with the fact that there were three of them writing as one, as well as all the other sort of gender issues and whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amazing, amazing. It's and, a great story. Uh, well, it, it's interesting. I, I I presume this has provoked a debate in in Spain, but it probably isn't as febrile as it would be in the UK currently or in no. the US. Well, where, it, where where these sort of um, you know. Are you entitled to write, uh, you know, as a male writer, have a female protagonist? I mean, even, you know, Mark Billingham, you've just read Rabbit Hole, which has his you know, first person female narrative. Yeah. Uh, and he was, you know, went through a sensitivity reader because there was concern that should he as a male writer be writing a, a female antag- uh, protagonist? Yeah. And he talked about it at um, uh, uh, Scotland, Scotland and, yeah. and the sort of challenges of it. But he, he sort of he, he said he embraced the challenge. And that, you know, personally, my opinion is, as a writer, it's quite good to take up these challenges to speak through a voice that you don't have experience of. That's part of the the, the 
you know, yeah. the learning of yeah. I writing. think I think we both lean towards you know the the primacy of imagination over, um, you know, being doctrinal about you know you can only write what you know. So what am I supposed to do? Write books from the perspective of a middle class person who came from came you know who was brought born and brought up in Cambridge went to Exeter University, worked for the BBC. I mean, how does that work? <laughs> it be uh, a great read. <laughs> yeah, well, it would. I mean, I've got plenty of tales, but, um, well, I like to think it would be. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, we were talking about this yesterday, actually. We think you should write your uh, <laughs> memoirs, yeah. but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My family story is a complicated one. And, um, <laughs> I know that my members of my family listen to this, so, you know, uh, I, I, I need to, uh, you know, one day maybe I'll tell it. But I think the fact is that, you know, there's still a lot of um, uh, issues under the under the bonnet there um, <laughs> that, that perhaps shouldn't be aired. But you know, yeah, yeah, uh, being oblique here. Um, anyway, no, it's it's fascinating. But also, I'd like to remind that uh, literary prize offers in this country, uh, particularly the the big industry ones, that you know, actually, it wouldn't be such a bad thing, would it, to try and push the price, you know, the prize win money up? Because <laughs> I mean, for some of it, it's pretty poor, really. Well, you're supposed to. Well, you're supposed to love getting the prize for the joy of winning a prize, aren't you? And I think there's also that argument that if your book wins a prize, you're going to sell more, so you're going to make more uh, money. There, yeah, there is that argument. Yeah, yeah. There, and of course, that is the way the industry is tilted. So uh, the book shops will stock obviously anything that's uh, award winning. Well, I'm and this, to some this, extent award nominated. When they translate this Spanish book, I'm. I am quite interested now to yeah, read it. Yeah, well, I'm so. sure Penguin Random House needed the money too. So, uh, you know, that'll, that'll keep the wolf from the door for them uh, for a bit longer. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's such a, a classic story. So uh, that's a good one. No, let's go into the sort of, it's a bit drier. This I was going to say, from the, from the damp to the completely and utterly desert. Yeah, <laughs> in terms yeah. of, so yes, it's, it's, I mean, it's kind of just um, confirmation of what everybody knows anyway, that digital uh, the, the proportion of digital revenue, the revenue from digital sales in the publishing industry is, is increasing. And in 2020, um, the, the, uh, there was a survey carried out uh, by the World Intellectual Property Organization. And um, they, they looked at lots of different countries, but the sort of the average was uh, came out 68.6 percent. Uh, of the proportion of the whole, you know, all the revenue was from digital sales, and they're saying it's partly a tr- general trend. More people are uh, reading digitally, as they, as we all know, and uh, nonfiction as well. There's more sort of subscription models um, for accessing content, um, but they're also saying it's partly to do with the pandemic. Of course, of course. I mean, you know, there there are many people who contact us and say, like, "I still want a physical book," and we respect that, but the fact is that in pandemic, certainly in the UK, all the bookshops were shut for, you know, eons, frankly, months and months and months. Yeah. And uh, you couldn't get your, your hands on unless you went through Amazon. So, <laughs> yeah, digital sales are where it's at. Now, the impact on someone like us is that, you know, previously independent publishers were making a success because they were the ones dominating the digital space. But now the traditional publishers, most of their revenue is, is presumably being generated by digital. They're getting in and using the same advertising models that the independent sector um, had to themselves for a long time. And that was forced by COVID, definitely. Definitely. So 
Um, I mean, one of the issues that we're trying to sort of wrestle with is the the impact is that it's just a lot more expensive to get your your books uh, in front of people uh, in the advertising space on Facebook and Amazon ads than it was even six months ago. It really is. It's, it's shot up because the traditional publishers can throw money at it like they can with their publicity campaigns, their marketing and all that sort of thing. And posters at, uh, at uh, you know, train stations and all that malarkey that simply isn't affordable for almost anybody in the independent sector. So it is challenging, it, it, you know, and uh, and that trend is going to continue. So you have to box clever and um, uh, we, we'll, we'll see how things go. Yeah, I mean, one thing, we're always on the lookout for something different, something new, that's something that perhaps not many people have worked out yet. That's, you know, yeah. the hope. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, that's well, sort of dry and depressing note we <laughs> wish to launch into our interview this week uh did you have anything else you wanted to mention i think there oh, is one more well thing. i mean it, it, I'm, I'm, it's, it's sort of talked about everywhere at the moment i mean poor mark billingham you know stood up at the cheltenham festival and said well i get to page 20 and if a book isn't engaging me then poof took it over my shoulder and move on and his argument was that um in comedy so you go see a comedian um, if they're not entertaining you after 10 minutes or so, it's fine to start making a noise and, you know, or walk out or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. saying, Heckle, well, yeah. Why, should, why should that be different with a book? You know, there, there are so many great books out there and you, you want to be entertained or um, educated or whatever it is by uh, literature or, you know, then if it's not doing it for you, what's the problem with moving on? And I actually agree with that because you've already bought the book. Unless you're sending it back regularly, the books back regularly, which you know is a different issue. But the author's already got the the sort of income from your purchase, so it doesn't bother them. I think it's fine. I mean, I I say that though, but I have struggled with giving up on books. I don't like to give up, and um, I've only ever done it with two books, and one was Ulysses by James Joyce, which I was on a train and I was only about an eighth of the way in, and I just thought. I'm not getting this. Life's too mm. short. <laughs> but that is actually cited as one of the common books that people do give up oh, on. Oh, yeah, sure. Like, you know, or Conrad. War and Peace is another one. Yeah. You know, yeah. these are all really, really famous books as well. You know, very sort of... Yeah, there are lots of impenetrable books and, and there are some that people like to show that they've read, or Proust even, you know. <laughs> I ha You see, that's, a, you that's have one read, I have, have read, read of Proust. Proust. He's, he is a genius. No, absolutely. But it does take hours of your time. No, exactly. Um, <laughs> and look, there is a reticence for people to sort of, you know. Uh, it's funny because you have these conversations with people, oh, gosh, that's a big book. And there's almost a, a you know, a, fact, a form factor issue. But yeah, I mean, uh, Ulysses is, is is pretty epic. But then there's others which uh, are shorter and and you know are very very difficult to to, to yeah, get into. Absolutely. Yeah. But I I kind of agree. Look, I I have a sh short attention span anyway, and so if somebody doesn't hook me in pretty quickly, or loses me somewhere in those first twenty pages, I'm the same. I would just say, Do you know what, I'll just move on to something else. I've got thousands of books here which I haven't touched yet. But this is how we regard submissions, isn't it? Yes, so it is. I mean, we have to with submissions because we, we physically haven't got the time to read uh, to the end of all the... No, well, we've got... we've we As we've as we announced, we, we, we opened them up in September. We had uh, 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 over 50 submissions and each of those submissions had a synopsis, a covering letter and three chapters. 
And to be honest, um, yeah, when you're doing what well, we've been setting ourselves a target of reading five a day uh, and, you know, giving the proper thing, but the, I can make a decision. I'm, I'm becoming uh, partly because we've got such a strong stable of authors anyway. And, you know, realistically, we can only take a few on um, in addition. But the thing is that, yeah, my tolerance of somebody, you know, drifting off or not really nailing it or whatever is, is much lower than, than perhaps when we first started looking at submissions. Yeah, so because I think initially we thought, well, this this might get better, this might get better. But now we're, we know, you just know, you know whether a book is, is gripping you, whether it's sort of, it's, also, it's almost like you get to the point where it's flowing naturally and you're not really... You're not conscious of the writing because yeah. it's so well told and well done and so those ones go on the yeah we'll we'll look at this one we'll read mm -hmm. this one further mm -hmm. pile so it's as simple as that and i'd just like to say mark if you are listening rabbit hole i got past page 20 i got to the end you did you did you were disappointed because it, it sort of lived with you a bit um it did i because i i was a sign of a i was book, I, I was quite lucky because when we're driving i can read and so with a 200 mile journey, I managed to read over half of that book. And when I do that, I get really, really into it because I'm living it as I'm sat next to you. You are car. the most extraordinary. <laughs> you have the ability to just ignore the fact there's a journey and you look up and you go, oh, here, <laughs> you know, and I've been slogging away for four hours at the wheel. Um, you know, I know, I'm sorry. And it's just like, oh, that was really easy. And I went, <laughs> no, it wasn't. I was battling the traffic and fatigue in the whole way there i do have this habit of oh we're not on the motorway now and oh. you say well that was 20 minutes ago we came off the motorway i know i know <laughs> look I'm, you know if you get through the journeys in any which way and i just grip the wheel for dear life and, and just hope for the, the thing is if i was driving your car you'd be gripping the uh... oh I, I, mean, I, I think i'd just be letting myself out the, the first traffic lights if i'm honest but um anyway look we we, we covered uh yeah 400 and i think it was Friday through to Sunday, we've covered 470 miles, so I'm knackered. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's an easy car to drive, but it's still knackering. So, so, so what I do to make up for it is I unpack his suitcase when we get back. Yeah, that's such a sweet <laughs> thing, and you did a beautiful job of that, you know, and I'm really grateful. Anyway, let's get into our interview. So we've um, spoken to in, the, in the past to Judy Dakin, who has uh, launched a successful series through Joffy Books, uh, set in um, Norfolk, where she lives, but she's native to to Yorkshire, but has lived in Norfolk for forty. She said forty years. Yeah. Forty years, yeah. Uh, and she approached us with um, a, a collection of ghostly tales linked around the Babes in the Wood legend, um, which is allegedly set or was established by uh, uh, in in the Norfolk area in a place called Wayland Woods, uh, the local sort of stately home it was called Griston Hall and uh, the story goes well she'll explain it in a yeah. moment anyway but um is that these uh, you know there was a, a couple of kids left in the woods to, to perish um and she has woven five stories across different eras of British history in, up to the modern day where the ghostly um images of these two young children appear and usually it's a portent of great danger and horror or, uh, or, or suspense some, just something isn't something it? Yeah. yeah they're they are a presence uh, and uh and it's beautifully written um five very compelling tales and uh our, our thinking on it was that when we read it um that Wayland babes would become 
something of a Norfolk perennial. Yes, I, thought that's, I think Judy's got the same sort of hope. But when we were there, I, w I was almost too mm. nervous to look too deep into the thickets in case I saw yeah, them. Yeah, it, it is a creepy place. I mean, it, we, we were in bright daylight. Uh, but, you know, if that was dusk and there was a mist, my goodness, what a, what a spooky area it is. I don't think I could have gone. No. <laughs> no, indeed. So she's captured that. Let's speak to Judy Dakin. What a beautiful afternoon it is, I Rebecca. Know. It's it's lovely. It's autumnal. It's sunny. It's actually quite warm in this location which we find ourselves. We do. Well, we'll explain where we are in just a moment. We are surrounded by mature woodland, uh, quite a landmark in this neck of the woods. And the neck of the woods is Wayland Woods, which is That's the setting woods. for <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful Wayland Babes by Judy Dakin, who is with us. Hello. Thank you so much for coming out, and um, oh, and Rhett as well, who's in, hovering in the background, providing an <laughs> what he describes as an acoustic screen. <laughs> it's a very important job, though. Yeah, because nearby is Snetterton Motor Circuit, and we will hear, no doubt, in the course of the next 30 minutes or so, something of them uh, racing around. And also, there are a lot of motorbike groups out this this weekend. Oh, there always are when the weather's nice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a mecca, isn't it? So yeah, we, we've yeah. travelled up from as we've explained at the beginning of the programme from Southwold, where we went to see another of our authors, Lynn LaVersha, and had a wonderful weekend. Uh, don't and I we... paddled in the sea. You paddled in the sea, I petted the dog, we ate well, we drank well. Boy, oh boy. Oh, we had some very nice posh wine, didn't we? Yeah, it's un <laughs> unusual. And now we, we're here, uh, which is the real purpose for the visit, really, to give a little bit of a boost and a, and a launch, really, to the wonderful Wayland Babe. So, it, five ghost stories. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Which are linked together, yeah. but inspired by uh, a local fable that has become internationally famous. Yes. The Babes in the Wood. Yeah. So take us through where that starts and why you know, it became the platform for the book. Right. Well, the, the, the original uh, supposed origin of the story is uh, a local tale uh, about um, a couple in Tudor times who uh, unfortunately passed away with a young son. And they leave uh, their property, Griston Hall, to the young son, uh, but in the care of uh, the father's brother, the, his uncle. And all seems to go well for a little while. And then the uncle decides that basically he would probably like Griston Hall for himself and the mm -hmm. money that goes with it. And uh, by this point, um, he's sending off the, the young lad to visit a relative and um, to do that, they pass through the, the woods here, which, of course, in Tudor times were very extensive mm. woods compared to now. And the young gentleman never arrived at his destination, so he never got to visit his relatives, and the groom that was accompanying him uh, vanishes. Um, and this was the basis of that. So this is the supposed true story on which the tale of the babes in the wood is based. Um, it grew slightly in the telling in that there becomes a boy and a girl. Oh right, yes. In yeah. in the uh, in the myth side of it, mm -hmm. if you like, but the basic principle and setup and setting remains the same. Uh, the idea being that the babes wander around the woods, unable to because they're so little, they can't find their way out. Um, but the ruffians that are taking them away to murder them have a change of heart and and abandon them. But unfortunately, the children are too small to save yeah. themselves and uh, fall asleep in the woods and eventually pass away, uh, covered by the local birds come and cover them with leaves and 
to make sure they, they get a peaceful sleep. Um, and that's the basis of The Babes in the Wood, which is the folk story that we know that mm-hmm. ultimately becomes the pantomime that we know. That Obviously, the pantomime grows in the telling because mm-hmm. there's not enough characters in there for a traditional panto, so that kind <laughs> of grows. Um, and it was first recorded in uh, what they call a broadside ballad, mm. uh, which was a very common form of storytelling uh, sort of from Elizabethan times. In fact, probably from before then, but... In Elizabethan times, they started to print the broadside ballads on a single sheet of paper. And it was one of the ways that, that um, ordinary people got news and or learnt to read. So it was, it was, they were very popular when printing was first around. Um, and lots of little print shops would grow up in centres of learning, like Norwich, where they were, they were all around the cathedral area. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they would print whatever... Uh, appealed to them and came to hand and this story was written into a into the ballad and it there was no no music to it you didn't have to know the tune you could fit it to a tune that you already knew uh, and in this area if people know of a tune called uh, dives and lazarus uh, or dives and lazarus it's sometimes called uh, vaughan williams wrote a, a tone poem based on it uh, and that fits the tune very well actually so it's it's possible that that was the, the origin tune that that that, that they used um but that broadside ballad came right down to us it's come down to us there are still copies of it um from the 18th century and the 19th century so it remained popular it kept being reprinted and became the basis of the story which ended up in sort of like mother goose collections of fables Mm. and that kind of thing and eventually ended up uh when they were looking for pantomime stories in the 19th century with wonderful people like dan lino and mary lloyd they were building the issues pantomimes in places like Drury Lane Theatre in London, and they were looking for things, and they would add whatever characters they needed yeah, yeah, to, sure. you know, to give everybody to or the famous painting, yeah. yeah, and to also to give all the famous people parts, yeah, um, you know, and and that's Babes in the Wood became a, a, one of our standard pantomimes um, at that time. I, it isn't done as much as some of the others, but. Um, yeah, it is, and, and that's how most of us get to know it, mm. yeah. is through that or through children's storybooks. Mm. That's quite incredible, really, isn't it? That a story, that it was a true story, but it, you know the way you sort of describe it as the son of the of the um, the, the couple who died and the you know the the uncle that could have got completely lost in time. You know that these yeah. things happen, yeah. but it's become this sort of almost romanticised myth. Mm. And you do feel it here. I definitely feel the sort of something kind of uh, shiver down the spine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is what you capture so well. But the the, the uh, poem that you, you just described mm. in the ballad, yeah, it's woven through. It introduces each new story yes. over those different centuries that yeah. you describe. So, uh, just for for people who haven't read the Wailing Babes um, or Wailing Babes, it, so that's the basic story. Mm. We get that. We we first meet those ghostly apparitions mm. of the young children, mm. uh, beckoning a young man who's come back from the Civil War, yep. to uh, into the woods deeper and deeper, mm. and where indeed, well, don't want to get too much away, but it's not a happy outcome, is it? <laughs> <laughs> not in that particular instance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I was lucky in that I did a, a degree in history, so I've always been interested in history, and in particular local history. Um, and you know any area I go to visit or like living here I, I love to pick up 
the folk stories and, and the working people's stories and how ordinary people lived through certain times and how they were, um, you know, how they were affected by those times. So in terms of the Civil War, one of the problems that people have been facing at that time in the villages in this area, of course, are visits from Matthew Hopkins, the Witchfinder General. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, not, not, uh, not Vincent Price. <laughs> no, well, no, he did do it rather well, but that's another story. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, there's an idea of how would that, if you wanted a, something at that time, what would be the issues that the people would be seeing, uh, you know, the older young men going away to war, uh, and many of them not coming back and leaving an older generation or the women at home to, to deal with and mm-hmm. run the businesses or try to run the farms or whatever it was. Um, and then on top of this, then you have this incursion of this man really coming to earn money, let's be honest, yeah. and accusing the women of being witches. Yeah, yeah. And so people it's an inquisition, yeah. Yeah, settling scores. And and so it, it becomes a very fraught time, and I, and I think in fraught times then... There is always superstition and the opportunity for... um, Within that, then you can begin to weave a story that how how might people begin to believe that ghosts were doing these things or they were bad omens and and that kind of thing. So that that was the sort of basic um, point that I set off from. Mm. I think it's because when when there's something confusing going on in in the world or in Mm. people's lives, they, they look for an answer... And so they use the myth as that's the answer. It must be that. And mm. it gives them mm. comfort in a way, even though it's quite scary. It's sort of, mm. if they have an answer to what's going on, the chaos. That Well, there, there seems to be an appetite. And I think that one of the successes of this book and story, set of stories is that it, 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 it's, it's a good time for it in the sense that mm. uh, there is a certain feeling of dystopia knocking around mm. you look at squid game we've just been sort of dabbling with it on, <laughs> oh, on right. netflix i haven't watched it yet no but there you go so korean south korean dystopian story about people playing a game for for potentially life-changing amounts of money mm. but if you fail in each game you get killed right. uh, and it's and it's the most popular thing that netflix ever put out really? in the space of three weeks it's become yeah. their biggest hit and mm-hmm. it seems to be an appetite for that sort of thing around so in a sense that first story chimes but then there's this ele- other element you know whenever you see the ghosts of the children it appears to be bad news mm. um mm. Or, you know for, but there's something for most, most people involved about it though isn't it because you see them and you think there's a message there and so i've got mm. to follow it i've got to mm. find out what it is even though you know all the characters know that it's not good mm. so they just have that need they have to a compulsion to follow mm. yeah. the, the, these children beckon them yeah um and and all sorts of th- odd and bizarre things happen but as that's a result. human nature don't you yeah. think but you just would wouldn't you because you well i think you would i would <laughs> i'm not sure i would i think i think that's where we're different <laughs> oh, okay so i wouldn't survive then <laughs> squid game <laughs> well i I'm, I'm just too lazy to walk that far you know? <laughs> but that, that that sort of foreshadowing i mean you do it beautifully thank you i, uh, I think that and, and and the layers of um because each story has its um, darkness and uh, mystery mm. and, for want of a better word, you know, chills, mm. you then enter the next story, whichever part of uh, you know era you've written about, 
uh, and new characters, and then you start thinking, right, okay, they're going to come along at some point and, and, and turn <laughs> yeah, things upside down. Yeah, 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 and it's they're wonderful. <laughs> but, I, but, but slightly different each time. Yeah. But it, what, yeah. what a challenge it was! I mean, you know, the, the historical detail that you've put into mm. these stories. Mm. Um, you know, we have uh, turn of the century Norfolk, yep, um, and the uh, quite staggering to a modern ear rules about uh, you know marriage that mm. you could send your wife off to a lunatic asylum <laughs> as long as you got your local doctor to sort of sign off on it. Yes. Or, yeah. or the local priest or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, extraordinary, really. Yeah. And you capture that brilliantly. Ah, good. No, she's... Um, there was uh, once published a list of uh, things that you could uh, commit people to um, a bedlam, a bedlam asylum for... And amongst other things were women's troubles, uh, one assumes menopause. Yeah. Um, I think we'd all be there, wouldn't we? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, quite right too. <laughs> Certain things we should not have dropped. Oh, right. uh, well, there you go. <laughs> um, and uh, being abandoned by your husband was another one, like it was your fault, obviously. Clearly. Um, clearly. And <laughs> novel reading was... Uh, oh, well, I'm... I'm uh, uh, so we'd all be uh, <laughs> in trouble, would banged we? up weeks ago, well, years yeah, ago. Years ago, in my <laughs> case, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, and it, it was that thing that also, having had that, that if you had been subjected to that for whatever reason, and unwanted pregnancies was, was clearly, you know, in retrospect, was a big part of it um but that you couldn't get back out again so you you couldn't be you weren't there to be cured you would like you would assume with a mental health facility Mm -hmm. now you were there to be kept away from separate from society yeah um and there was no sense that there was any limit to your stay and the only way you got out was if the member of the family who had committed you or other members of your family uh, would agree that they would take you back and look after you. So you really had to have someone actively had to come and find you and take you back. So once you were in that place, if no one was looking for you, you were never going to come out, whatever reason you'd been put in there for. So it was a prison sentence to people who were put in there for... A life sentence, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, mm. for, for, for people who were put in there for things that, you know... Um, fairly normal would be considered quite normal now um, like novel reading <laughs> well, what about novel writing my goodness oh, gosh, no, no. One, no wonder George Eliot went, went, went blokey uh, for the title <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no you can yeah. see that um, so you capture this, this side of society and you weave in the, the, the babes and um, it, the, the foretelling of something mm. dreadful's going to happen and you, mm. you, 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 as you're reading it you're thinking oh please don't be the the wonderful protagonist, that, you know, let it be her <laughs> dreadful husband yeah. uh, who, who befalls something terrible happens to. Yeah. Um, that's marvellous. And I, I, my favourite of all the tales that you tell uh, is without question World War Two. Right. And so just remind us where the, the local airfield was here, close to the OK, Wayland. so um, it, basically from where we're standing... Away in towards Snetterton Racetrack, in fact, uh, and reaching from there up to the town of Watton was um, RAF Watton. And uh, it was built, the, the land was bought by the MOD, uh, well, the RAF, in the run up to the Second World War because they were very acutely aware that the war was likely to come. 
uh, and East Anglia, of course, is the nearest to the continent. So yeah. and happily quite of, flat as well. Yes, <laughs> and and so from that, and also quite dark in the sense that there's not a lot of cities and there's yeah. not a lot of well, light I felt and that industry. Last night in Suffolk, it was very dark. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we ended up with a lot of airfields here and a lot of pre-prepared airfields were here. Only one of which is still in use, but. Um, Watton was one of those. So it was built as a state-of-the-art facility in thirty-seven, and Bomber Command moved in pretty much straight away. But Bomber Command, not as we know it, uh, so we always think of um, Lancasters yes, and, and, yeah, and big places like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in fact, um, I'll tell you a bit more about my family involved in that in a minute. Um, but they came in with little Blenheims. Now, little Blenheims were were quite. Um, they were relatively new at the time, but they were almost string and ceiling wax sort of um, bless them planes yeah, and yeah. they had three people on board um and they i think they carried a payload of it might have been half a dozen bombs it you yes. know and they were exceptionally vulnerable they were planes. they were flying coffins they were it? really and uh, the squadron that was here at um Watton, uh, lost all bar one plane i think a squadron was either 18 or 20 i can't remember planes they went on uh, a mission so fairly early in 1940 and lost all bar one plane. Um, came back, that, that plane managed to get back. Some of the people involved in that managed to get back through Dunkirk. There's some of the pilots, some went into prisoners of war camp and, of course, some were, were, were okay, unfortunately yeah. killed. And then they built, the, built it up again and they went out again a few months later and the same thing happened to them a second time. Mm. So they really were the squadron that died twice. And there's a, a fantastic book that I read. Uh, I can't remember the name of the chap, but I'm, I put it's it as you, a reference. Acknowledgement, in the book. yes, yeah. Yeah, uh, and it's if you're interested in that part of history, then it's a fantastic book, um, and it tells you all about the operation and who was involved in it. So I th- that was what kind of got me going because I knew that would be a good period to try and set something in, and particularly with the squadron suffering in that specific manner. Yeah. Um, that that maybe the babes were seen uh, at the end of the runway and the well, fair part. Yeah, I know. Yeah. No, it's going to happen again. So, but then into all of that came my own personal story. Yeah, and my I'm my father who um, I was quite a late flowering for my mum and dad. So my <laughs> my dad was forty two when I was born. So he was young enough to have been in the war, mm. and um, he trained in the RAF. Uh, in fact, went to Canada to train sure. with the RAF mm-hmm. um, and uh, became a navigator and he blew for, uh, blew, flew for Bomber Harris uh, for part of the war. He spent another part of the war uh, working on the Mulberry Harbours because he was a civil engineer okay. before yeah, he was yeah, yeah. drafted. Um, but he didn't fly from this area but he, he flew and my dad's middle name was Trevor so that's where the character comes ah. from. Ah, yeah. Um, <laughs> The love interest. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And then my own personal story also comes into it in that, as a family, we lived in one of the estate villages at Nostal Priory, and my great-grandparents ran the Spread Eagle in Rugby. Okay. Ah. So, (laughs) so you know, so there is a direct kind of... So I brought my personal story over into that. It isn't how my mum and dad met, to be fair. They met after the war. But um, I just thought that, you know, it was yeah. a little yeah, tribute like to my that, dad yeah, and, yeah. and what he did. So, no, that's yeah. beautifully done. And I think that, you know, that sort of um, claustrophobia 
around the base. You know, mm. they're, they're occasionally getting a pass and a chance yep. to s- snatch a cup of tea or go to a lion's tea bar or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is seen as a massive treat and a, and yeah. a, and a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, the fact that every time the engine started up and rumbled down the runway, uh, the dread of all of those people on the base that they weren't going to see people again. Mm. Um, which, you and, know... And I, well, I mean, the acceptance of that. that well, there is, there is. I mean, people volunteered to join Bomber Command um, knowing... The statistics. The odds were poor. The, po- the odds the were, were poor, poor that you know only yeah. you know your your average bomber command crew uh, managed six flights. Yeah. And fifty three thousand of them. It was the mo- we had losses in the in the Royal Air Force lost more people than any other branch mm. of the armed services. Mm. Mm. Fifty three thousand. Uh, fifty five thousand, I think. Um, and you know if you get on board one of those aircraft i haven't been on a blenheim but i've been inside a lancaster mm. just how paid to do that my dad was on the lancaster <laughs> yeah. so i'd love to get and i was very fortunate very fortunate you know one of those things the privileges of being a journalist sometimes mm. you you can pick a subject that you're interested in and yeah. persuade them somebody to let you do it. so yeah. I, i've i've been um, you know climbed under the spar of the the main wing spar which yeah, was yeah. narrowed the, the fuselage in the middle um and then if you go to the rear gunner's end my goodness, they were brave because they couldn't have... It was so small, mm. they couldn't have their parachutes on. Yep. So they yep. had them stowed behind where the, where the toilet was. Um, and they'd have... To, if they were attacked and the plane was going down, um, they'd be... Usually the plane would be going, obviously, nose first. Mm. And they'd be up mm. in the air. And they'd have to try and scramble out, potentially on fire, find their parachutes caught fire, then hook themselves out the back. I mean, it was nearly impossible to get out as a mm. rear gunner. Yeah. Mm. Um, because it was so cramped, mm. uh, and they'd frozen by this point anyway, because yeah. they were up at so tw- high. twenty thousand oh yeah. feet, and they were wearing yeah. thermals, but they couldn't yeah. actually. Uh, often they couldn't plug into the heating system, mm. but the other guys could. Mm. So, I mean, my respect for them is immense, and I think it mm. comes through really well the sort of stoicism with which mm. these people approached. Mm. What you know, the receiving end was obviously ghastly if you're in Hamburg, mm. Cologne, or anywhere else, Dresden. Mm absolutely appalling but yeah. you, you can't help but root for these guys who went across um knowing the odds yeah, yeah. and volunteered to do more tours some of them yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think my dad only survived because he came back from training and i have two beautiful tiny little photographs about this big uh, he trained with the canadian air force as big batches of people yeah. from here did, yeah, did yeah. in 39 40 41 um and as a navigator, he was given two coordinates and, and a camera, and he had to fly the plane to the coordinates. Yes. And I assume he was only just over the border because these two photographs that I have that he took of these coordinates, one is New York docks from the air, yeah. and the other is the Empire State Building oh, from wow. the air. <laughs> um, and Amazing. sort of 1940, early 1940. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so there's some of my prized possessions, yeah, you know. Yes. And he came back and he did he did do some flying. And but as I say, because he was a civil engineer, once they'd started thinking about how are we going to wind up to D Day and how we're going, anyone who had that kind of qualification okay, yeah. got shipped into um, a kind of supra division, if you like. So they weren't RAF, they weren't army, they were kind of yeah. engineers yeah. really, yeah. and they were trying to work out how were the landing craft going to work, how were the Mulberry Harbors going to be built, you know what. Did, stresses did they have to go through with the, on the sea and so on 
So he got seconded to that for a good two years, as far as I can make out from his paperwork. Mm. Um, and I think that probably saved his life. Yes. I almost yeah. certainly would have thought. Yeah. 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 And then eventually he did come back. Um, and he always told me, although I've never tried to prove this, he always told me that he did take part in the bombing of Dresden. Um, and it was on his conscience all his life. Aww. Yeah, it would be. And he, uh, he, the only, uh, like a lot of people his age, he didn't like to talk about no, it. No, we've um, talked about this a few times. Like yeah. my grandfather wouldn't talk about no. his experiences in the war. No, absolutely. And and a lot of this we found out because after he passed away, Mum and I found that he kept all his old um, records. He kept all his training books and his navigation books and and everything. Um. And I, he once, just once we talked about it, not long before he died, and, and I was, you know, talking about why was... At that point, there was no memorial to Bomber Command. Um, and we were talking about that, and, and he just turned to me and he said, you know, I went where they told me. Hmm. We went where they told us. And they bro- bombed a suburb, not um, factories or airstrips. No, it was area bombing, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And I think it was on his conscience that he thought he got his navigation right mm. and that he had been sent to the wrong place and that he would never he would never talk about it. Mm. But mm. I think it was there on his mind all the time that he'd bombed innocent civilians when in his head it should the target should have been yeah. you know, armaments. But bomb, Bomber Harris's philosophy was to dehouse as many Germans as mm. possible. Yeah. Um, but the the problem for Dresden is it's late on in the war the the Russians are about to overtake it anyway, mm. overrun it. And, um, you know, it, it's very hard to make a military justification for yes. what happens. Yeah. I mean, some people yeah. argue that there were lots of um, German reserves uh, massing in Dresden mm. as, a, as a main mm. rail point to mm. the Eastern Front, ready to, to join the, the... But that's very hard to justify. Yes. But also it was a, yeah. wooden, a wooden marvel. Of, yeah. a, of a city so yeah. it caught, caught very quickly did, yeah. yeah and yeah. and I, I read an account of uh one of the, it was a it was a british airman who was being moved through dresden um as the you know some of the camps in poland obviously were being mm. overrun the stalags um so they were being shifted and they were in in dresden or just outside dresden watching all this and the mm. terrible things mm. that they saw you know people being swept up into the sky by the, the firestorm mm, on the mm, fly and mm. things like that and um, then they were sent in to go and clear up the mess um, yeah, and some yeah. of his colleagues died because they were actually imprisoned in Dresden when the bombs dropped so mm. uh, yeah I mean you know it is pretty stark what happened there mm, um, mm. sustained definitely yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very, yeah but it is again it's one of those moments of crisis isn't it in, in, in our history as well as other people's and and in those moments of crisis uh, come these superstitious moments mm. that, you know, you can, as, as a storyteller, you can tell, oh, what can I do with that? That, you know, something may have happened at that point. Mm. And then your imagination gets going. Yeah. And you kind of, yeah. you know. Well, I mean, you've got, you've got five in. stories of people at, at difficult times, uh, periods of stress in their lives, mm. Mm. and the babes appear in, mm. their, in their vision and, and, and change the course of events. Mm. Uh, or foretell things, uh, and it's brilliantly done. So, in terms of your uh, kind of the style of you've adopted for this, uh, the inspiration behind it, mm. who, uh, where does that come from? Because it has a real feel for that British tradition of uh, suspense and horror. I think. Yeah, I think I certainly one of my great heroes is M. R. James. Uh, you know, I've, I've read all his stuff, and I 
love all the adaptations they've done over the years on the BBC and, and indeed some stayed ad- adaptations that I've seen. Um, so I love all that kind of thing. And I, uh, uh, Sheridan Le Fanu and, and uh, people like that, even uh, Bram Stoker. Um, so I guess my tradition is really is Victorian and Edwardian, you know, yeah. Wilkie Collins, that, that kind of thing. Um, and as a teenager, um, I remember watching the, on a Friday, well, it was a Friday night or a Saturday night, they used to have the horror double bill. I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, yeah. I <laughs> and they used, to have, they used to have a black and white movie on first and then a related colour movie on second. And the, and the black and white movie would be one of those 30s, 40s kind yeah, of yeah. universal yeah. horror films. And then the Hammer equivalent or whatever afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all thought we were terribly brave sitting up <laughs> and watching this kind of thing. Um, but that kind of got me into this whole kind of horror storytelling rather than as shock horror like Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre kind mm. of yeah, style not, of thing. Yeah, there's not the schlock and the, the, the gore. Mm. No, no, nor Hostel or any of those, the Saw films or anything like not, that. No, so, yes, so it's not that kind of thing. It's more the jump cut and uh, things aren't right and is that someone behind me? Exactly, someone, someone coming over the shoulder, eye? you know. Something yeah. in your the eye corner. Like yeah. yeah, and the music's yeah. perfectly done, yeah. Uh, and I think one of the great exponents of it now is Mark Gatiss, I think, he, you yes. know, when he does his work. I mean, I thought I actually thought his adaptation of Dracula was was absolutely fantastic, mm. bringing it into the modern period. I know it wasn't necessarily popular with purists, but I actually <laughs> thought they did a really good job. Yeah, I enjoyed yeah. it. I did enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, I did we enjoy watched that. it, didn't we? So. Yeah. yeah. So you know, so I'm more on that that kind of gothic side yeah. of things. And also, we used to read. Um, some people may remember there used to be the Pan Book of Horror stories used to come out once a year and yes. there was always eight ten twelve whatever stories in it and they would be done by quite well-known people like uh, dennis wheatley and people like that um and and that used to be a once a year treat that i used to trot into <laughs> wh smith to buy that um and so i guess i come from that kind of background um and then in terms of the history stuff i i like um i like history crime fiction mm. i'm particularly fond of a, a local writer called nicola Upson. i don't know if people have come across her uh she writes about josephine tay oh, the right, yeah. uh, crime writer and has her as a character in the novels right and one of her books called nine lessons is set in cambridge and mr james is a character in that book ah. <laughs> um and that's well <laughs> worth the read the nine lessons <laughs> yeah. and carols well, that yeah. was a horror yeah I know. yeah <laughs> yeah performed in it yeah yeah. So, yeah, so, and, um, you know, so I like all that kind of tangled web, if you like. Exactly, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, don't, I don't like the um, being chased through the house with a chainsaw doesn't do much for me. No, it doesn't do much for so, me, actually, no, when it I, happens I, to me. It's that creeping... <laughs> well, actually, funnily enough, I'm getting that feeling of chill now because the because sun has slipped behind the yeah, trees. and it has chilled. Oh, the yeah. air has chilled. Absolutely. Yeah. So quite I cockle- think they know we're talking And the wind that. rustling. It, 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 just hold silent for a second. If everyone's picking up the the general ambience of Wayland Woods. Well, we are here in Wayland Woods. We are talking to Judy Dakin, the author of Wayland <laughs> Babes, out uh, earlier this week. In fact, a week ago, for, as we do this podcast. And I think if you, if you glimpse over there, I keep oh yeah looking for signs. Of well, that that would be the sort of thicket and copse yeah. that you would 
necessarily, you know, once you got in there, you wouldn't necessarily find your way out in the so, darkness. Not easily. I have a question <laughs> yeah. for Judy now. All oh, right, okay. Have it's... you ever seen a ghost? Yes. Is this the random question? No, it's not the random question. Oh, right. It's yes. related to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I have, let's put it that way. But when I was a teenager, and I think if, if it's real or if it's your imagination, I think you're more susceptible as a teenager. Um, either you're more in contact or your imagination runs richer. I, and the I hormones, actually, I think they do make you more sensitive in general to, to all kinds of other stuff. people's feelings and, yeah. and <laughs> atmospheres. They yeah. do, they do. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, looking back, who knows if it was true or a trick of the light. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say that, on balance, I would say, yes, I've seen a ghost. Yeah, I've seen one at my old church in Cambridge. Honestly. Okay. So, I, well, I, you know, I was the tower cleaner of Great St Mary's Church, which is in the centre on King's Parade, uh, Market Square. And um, I used to clean the towers, which sweeping 123 steps to the top. And uh, every so often, I would feel this presence coming out of one of the little alcoves as you go up, because there's always these little rooms. There's the belfry, mm-hmm. the, there's where the bells actually hang. Then there's the, the ropes, and then there's there's one room that was never opened. Now, the th- the, see, this, this is interesting because you took me up there, didn't you? Yeah. And I, I almost had a panic. Out. I you was did. really, really panicky. So it was a, there was lots of tourists going up and down, and I felt I felt terrible, and I had to get out. And I do get I haven't seen a ghost, but I get that sometimes in places. Like um, there, I had it really bad. It took me two or three hours to calm down. It was very strange because mm-hmm. there was no other, nothing to make me feel panicky. There was no other reason. Just that place, I didn't like the atmosphere. There was something mm-hmm. about it. My sister's house, I don't think, don't know if she listens to the podcast, but there were <laughs> rooms in her house, and her house is sort of, I think it's about 250 years old, and mm. they completely renovated it. There are some rooms in there that I don't feel comfortable in at mm. all. And my mum has mm. said the same independently of me, mm. but we've never seen anything, so we don't know what it is. You don't, we don't know, it's no. just us being sensitive, <laughs> for want of a better word. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think you are predisposed to the supernatural do you I do <laughs> I do mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's an appropriate way to <laughs> do you feel comfortable being in no. a ghostly place with somebody <laughs> predisposed <laughs> to spooky things um, Judy while we we're here, you mentioned <laughs> <laughs> not going to answer <laughs> I'm not going to I'm going to move on um, very swiftly but um, you mentioned the pan annual book of horror stories yes well, we, 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 we've been talking about this. This could be something of a tradition that you bring out, hopefully, <laughs> um, some some chilling tales. Well, I, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the intention. Um, I do have a, a basic idea for next year, but I'm trying to find the right historical ways to, to yeah. use the idea uh, to make it feasible. Um, so I'm not going to say what it is. Because um, mm. that's no, no. <laughs> Somebody might beat me to it as well. That's, that's a good true. teaser. That's a good teaser. So there's a bubbling. Yes, there yeah. is a bubbling there. Oh, we're we're, and, we're um, excited about that prospect. And of course, your principal series is with Joffy Books, and yeah. book re- you had a cover reveal this week. I did, yeah. And that yeah. was, I mean, spectacular cover. Yeah. The oh, lighthouse, you know, yeah, there's yeah. moody skies in the fields, yeah. and yeah, yeah, I mean, great, great, great cover. And um, we were looking at Joffy and saying. Mm, dang damn it they've sold 10 million books <laughs> in the seven years they've been up yes, uh, that's yeah. a heck of an achievement yeah. um so yeah i mean 
it's unfair to ask you the contrast between working with them and us. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> they sell books, we don't. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we, we, don't we say that. But we smile we sweetly. Cat. We have a cat. We <laughs> smile have sweetly. Cat. Two cats. Yeah, and, and and you know, if you drop in, we'll make you coffee. What more could you want? Absolutely. Uh, but no, it's 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 fantastic to see you know that continue and go to strength to strength. Yeah, well, I'm working on book four for them um, as well. So book three is uh, due out in 11th of November. It's called A Brutal Season, and it's Sarah's third outing, uh, and she has to deal with the murder of a carnival queen. And uh, book four, again, I'm not going to say what that's about, but it will be set in the county. Um, yeah. And that be, having lived here for 40 years now, it, it very much it's my home, and, and I love the place, yeah. and, and I love the atmosphere, uh, and I love all the wonderful folk tales that we have, and the, there's so I think there's so much... Um, uh, volume of kind of ideas that can mm. come out of that you know there's such a grand swell of, of great storytelling out of the county um and indeed the whole of east anglia yeah i think i was going to say because it, it, that in east anglia yeah because this is your first really extended visit into this part of the of the world isn't it really yes I, um, it's, um where have i been i went to a wedding in norwich once and then uh, Biddle's printers in Kings Lynn on a work trip. That's all I've ever been before. Yeah, so. and I was on the fringes in Cambridge, <laughs> so you know we looked east and um, you know fell off the edge of the world. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Once you got past Mildenhall and yeah. Lake and Heath, yeah, it did yeah, feel that it way. It does feel like that. Yeah, I, the further towards the outs the outsides you go, the less populated it is, is the more rural it? it becomes. And to be like 100 and 120 miles from London and still be able to walk three miles down the country lane and maybe see one cottage <laughs> yes. is uh, people don't, I think, unless they come to see, don't understand quite how rural it is. I mean, on a, on a good clear night, we can see the Milky Way here just as well as you can as in the Kilda Forest. Yeah. Um, as long as you're up on the coast, um, not in Norwich, because obviously yeah. the street lights there. <laughs> Um, and, and I think there is a deep sense of tradition and storytelling oh, here so. that oh, really? yeah. is, is there to be mined. The history. And I and feel the, that sense of history. Absolutely. Definitely. And the churches. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. The churches are mm. amazing around mm. in this neck of the woods. So mm. it, is, it is wonderful. Um, you know, it's great and to have crows. a reason to come. I don't know if that was just Suffolk, but there were so many crows flying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Now, narration. That's the other side that we've been yes. liaising about. And yes. um, when I pull my finger out next week, I will finish the edit of Blood Loss finally. I do apologise. It's taken a rather long time, rather a lot longer than it should have done. Uh, but nonetheless, it sounds fantastic. Good. And good. can't wait for that. And, um, uh, of course, uh, Sleeping Dogs is already out. Yes. Right, which he did uh, for Wendy Turbin. So yep. yeah, it's wonderful. I'm sure we've got other things in, well, in the well, pipeline. we were thinking of something, weren't we? But we'll talk Again, about you know, spoiler alert. We can't, we can't, we can't bubbling, say yet. Bubbling. Bubbling. Yeah. But it's I bubbling. will be... Um, Obviously, narrating Wailing Babes. Yes. For you in yes. case. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, so, narrated by the author, yes. as they say. Which is always, always the best way. It's always can. the best yeah. way. You, know, you don't yeah. want me you know, getting over it. And, and you certainly don't want me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm knee deep in Merseyside accents at the moment. <laughs> Merseyside. I, I did uh, Shirley Valentine once, and it's really hard to carry it for two hours like that. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Sucking on a can of Coke. Sucking on a can of Coke. Yeah, that's how I get into it. That's my trigger phrase. <laughs> I'll have a shotgun and a kind of coke. And then uh, you can sp- find the other Merseyside accents. You work out from it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. The, the, the danger, and I've said this on the podcast before, is that you go, get into, all right, all right, la, calm down. You know, sort of, <laughs> you know, you get Harry Enfield. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, um, yeah. yeah it, it's it's dangerous. Or you just become, so John Lennon and 
and get them in we, nasal. We did watch, I think we watched one episode of Brookside, didn't we, to try and get Just into it. But they were so different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, you found the most emotional episode of Brookside. It was a, the, the rape, the post-rape, post-rape one. Rape Sheila's rape. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. it was traumatic, so we, we couldn't watch any more after that. <laughs> it was too much. Yeah, yeah. There's certain, uh, you know, I couldn't, you know, I'm going to repeat any of the stuff that went on in that. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think it's time for the random question, my love. Okay. okay, so it's got nothing to do with ghosts. Okay. Okay. Right, all right, I'll just do the, the, the big yeah, booming. Do, 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 okay. do the build-up. Rebecca's random question. Right, so I have a theory. Often my random questions start with one of my theories that um, people are attracted to a certain type of artwork which is opposite to how their brain works. So my question is, do you like your art to be quite abstract and, and um, busy or do you like calming images or calming abstract paintings what do you like uh, now you you really have asked me a question there uh, i'm a, me. i am a, a, a big fan of um modern art from the futurists right through to the abstract expressionists and it was part of my degree so you will find me mooning in front of dreamily um in front of mark rothko or jackson pollock or Boccioni, or, um, or the Vorticists, people like that, Paul Nash. Um, so that is very much my thing. But that's quite interesting because Rothko is a very calming type mm-hmm. of art. Meditative. Jackson yeah. Pollock is the complete opposite. So I think yeah. you've just thrown my theory out the window. Because <laughs> <laughs> non-representational <laughs> is really what I like. Is Or the breakdown of representation is, yeah. is what I'm interested in. So you know, it starts with people like Bracken Picasso... Uh, and you know, and, and all that kind of stuff, and, and I love watching that that journey down to um, no, the, there is no referenceable kind of um, human uh, part in a picture, and and I love Rothko. I love sitting in that room in the Tate, you know, with the Four Seasons pictures, the maroon pictures in. But if you look closely, you can see that they might be landscapes. They might be. Stonehenge monoliths. Then mm-hmm. the, the trick is to let go and, and drift into the visual, which is what he wanted you to do. Whereas Jackson Pollock is very busy, and it's all about the randomness of the brain pattern guiding the hand, mm-hmm. um, and the years of experience that make you do that, rather than the actual end. Yeah, it's itself. very difficult to just say, right, I'm going to do a random painting like Jackson Pollock it, mm. it's, you can't, you try but it just doesn't work until you sort of yeah that's true now you you might be quite jealous but I, when I was in New York I think it was the Museum of Modern Art they had a mm-hmm. Rothko room yes. and they would only allow one person in at a time uh, yes. and it was church like it was yeah. amazing yeah. because you, you did you just sort of stopped and it was silent and you just looked mm-hmm. it was really quite something yeah so yeah. I, I i understand the the love of rothko mm. <laughs> we're getting too deep here this is the this is the hobcast <laughs> book show <laughs> this is usually the you know gossipy ephemery you know well, they're not used to me getting deep are they they're used to me being a bit silly okay <laughs> well that, that's fu- that's fascinating I'm, I'm more of a lowry man myself <laughs> <laughs> ah, but even you, you, even he could could do realism if he wanted. So he chose to paint the way he chose yeah. to paint. Well, this is interesting. It's a bit like we we were saying about um, when you're writing. When you break the rules when you're writing, mm. that's fine if you know the rules in the first place. Yes, and it's the same with art. Well, that's what it we is. C- well, yeah, and that's the message we give to our authors. <laughs> so, you know, don't try and break those rules until you've actually established in the mind of the reader that you actually knew them in the first place. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> because nothing drives them nuts faster than yeah. than errant grammar. Uh, and it's not for art, it's just because you don't know what you do. So, <laughs> being blunt. Uh, right, let's, let's, draw to, let's draw this close, because I'm, I'm very conscious that Rhett must be freezing. Uh, and, uh, and, and my feet are giving out very fast, because I'm in these ridiculously tight waterproof shoes, which don't quite fit. Um, more fooled me for buying them on the internet. There you go. Uh, but it has been, uh, again, a wonderful pleasure to speak to you, Judy. Thank you. And you. to work with you, it's, it's always a, an honour. It's great fun. It's yeah, great fun. It and is I, great. I admire you for taking on the project because it, it is different to what a lot of, you know, it, it's an unusual project. It, it but, is, so. but we love a challenge. We love a challenge. We love the stories. We, we could see the appeal and we're pretty con- confident the people of Dis will continue to buy it for generations <laughs> to come. <laughs> so we may not r- get rich quick. But we'll certainly it'll it'll Keep be a stead. Only it's a perennial. Once this area gets used to and discovers that book, mm. they will hand it down through generations. I am I absolutely hope so. yeah. I think so. <laughs> You'll become so, a legend in yourself in my own lunchtime. Yeah. So for, <laughs> thank you, Judy. We're in the Wayland Woods, and uh, we will be back with you in a few seconds. We've no doubt got some. We'll go back to being glib, silly, and, and stupid. Absolutely. The wonderful Judy Dakin joining us in Wayland Woods. Now, part of this project was to get a cover design, of course, which we take a lot of pride in, but um, we managed to find someone in-house to do it this time. In fact, it uh, was Judy's daughter, Gwen, who uh, used her skills in in digital uh, fashion. She she works in the the gaming industry mostly, uh, making uh, video games and things like that and being a visual artist. Um, And she kindly did an amazing cover which, uh, as Judy described, uh, is is apes sort of a woodcut feel from the 19th century. Yeah. But with a modern twist. Uh, it really is very, very arresting. So we've asked um, Gwen to explain the whole process. Hi, I'm Gwenera Dakin. Uh, Judy is my mum. And we've been talking for some time uh, about doing some projects together. And I've been starting to make online art and mum asked if I wanted to do some work for her new collection of ghost stories. I wasn't, I wasn't entirely sure what direction would work until we got the first story, uh, which I, I think the first one I, I kind of came across was mum did a recording for Christmas last year. And it had this awesome aesthetic of like reading it in, in a darkened room in front in a, in a cottage in front of her fireplace. And that was just like such an imaginative kind of interaction of it. So the inspiration was uh, woodcut images. Um, I happened to do this virtual Christmas party last year. Uh, and for the invites for it, I, I made this very woodcut style character over these layers of, of trees. And mum felt that it would be uh, perfect for her stories. So that, that evolved into the cover image as I kind of read the stories and got an idea about uh, who the characters were and how they fitted into the world. I really loved the way that the, the Wayland Babes had this ephemeral kind of loose description um, that they somewhat changed throughout the times, um, depending on who notices what about them, really. The thing about woodcutting is you get like three or four different layers which are created by the depths of the cut that you leave, um, which are created by the depth of the cut into the wood. Uh, this leaves different amounts of inks. And this gives a really, really good feeling of depth for an image. I'm a digital artist, 
So I, I actually did this in Photoshop, so it's not, not wood cutting, but I basically worked in, used that philosophy of wood cutting to, to make my work. So each color was kind of clamped to a different layer. And this kind of, this forced me to really plan in terms of like, this is the darkest part. This is the part that's going to lay on top of that and just kind of lay the layers on top and, and bring everything together. Uh, and so I, I spent a lot of time like examining old woodcuts. Um, there's a, a particular guy I watched who's a professional Japanese woodcut printmaker who's really good at getting into the theory of, of, of how the ink's going to work and how to like make the plates work and stuff. So yeah, a, a lot of a lot of a lot of research in Photoshop. This is my first book illustration, but I've been making graphics for myself and being my own concept artist for a while. So applying that to cover illustration was really fun. It's really interesting to try and distill the essence of a story down into a single eye-catching picture. It's almost like a pre-blurb, something that that needs to call out to potential buyers from a shelf of a bookstore, or you know, more commonly a web page. I would definitely consider doing other book illustrations. Uh, the thing that's nice about digital is it's it's like having every art artist toolbox at your fingertips. So if you research a particular analog method, you can probably recreate it digitally. So yes, other books genres you know would be fun to try my hand at. And you know I'm a very experimental artist. I like learning lots of new new things and techniques. So yeah, yeah, I definitely would. Thoughts of Gwen Dakin on uh, the process of creating uh, such a brilliant cover for Wayland Babes. And uh, as we've been discussing with, with Judy, we hope to have another collection of wonderful ghostly tales based in the Norfolk area for next year. So uh, we've watched this space, but uh, thanks to Gwen for taking the time to explain how it all came about and uh, what went behind it. The wonderful Abir Mukherjee is going to be part of our show next week, our guest, and Abir has written um, some fantastic historical uh, novels set in um, in colonial India and post-colonial India, and they are award-winning. Um, they are, you know, some of the best books in the historical crime fiction yeah, no, in the last decade. He's doing very question. well. I mean, there was, there was something about being Times number one selected yeah, historical yeah. I mean, fiction he, or something. He's or... he's also a star of the um, of the circuit in terms of the festivals. Um, and a very, very nice guy. So really thrilled. And he said he'd be honoured to be on our show. So I know. I love it when people say oh, nice things yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we even got contacted by someone quite pretty big in, in America who said they wanted to come on the show. So, um, you know, it's taking off. And uh, we love doing it. And um, we'll, we'll give, you know, need to give thought to show number 50. Uh, how are we going to mark our, uh, yeah. our sort of... Well, I, century. I, that, I, see, I predict that is going to be Christmas. That's going to be mm, a Christmas is. show. I mean, yeah, so working out, yeah, it's yeah. Christmas. So that's good. Um, and it's my fiftieth. It is your fiftieth. So, ooh, lots of fifties. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to panic about what to do for it. But anyway, we're looking forward to that. <laughs> um, we went to Cambridge on our trip as well, and we, did. Uh, we took the Genesis Inquiry by Ollie Jarvis, which is of course set. Uh, at least the first half is set in Cambridge. Uh, and photographed it in various strategic <laughs> locations. Got, there was one point when we were photographing the book, so I was holding the book, um, mm. you know, being the model, holding the book, and you were taking photos, and this random man walked behind you, and he was like, ooh, 
and he and he sort of grinned at me, got his phone out, and he took a photo as well. I love that. I love that. So we were standing in front of Gomble and Keys, uh, which is the college that Lizzie, the daughter of the main character, is going to, and it's Stephen Hawking's old college, and um, it's in the centre of town, uh, and right next to the Senate House. And the Senate House was was hosting a, a postgraduate. Um, uh, degree ceremony so there were lots of people running around in gowns and also anglia ruskin university were doing their uh, degree ceremony at the corn exchange so the place was just festooned with people in mortarboards which gave it a really good atmosphere watching people did. walking around in their formal attire big down Trinity Street. Shoes and things oh like that. it was brilliant and then <laughs> you know the, the sun came out we took some photos by the river and, and all that sort of thing so it was a whistle stop visit it was a couple of hours uh it reminded me of obviously you know blathered on about my youth and what I used to do and places I hung out. But the sadness is... He one says of the, hung out. Well, one of the key <laughs> locations for oh. the... In fact, last week, if you listen to the podcast, you heard me narrate a scene set in Don Pasquale Pizzeria Restaurant. Now, it has it, it, that restaurant has been there for the 50 years that I've been on this planet. And it's now shot and sold and it's gone. So it's in the Genesis Inquiry, Chapter 5. It's no longer there. I know, it was and gutting, was wasn't it? It was gutting. horrified. And I kept saying, that, well, maybe it's temporary, knowing that it probably wasn't. No, but then I posted a picture of it and said something about, you know, hashtag Cambridge. And boy, oh boy, everyone with their reminiscences. <laughs> uh, some people I knew, but also the former owner of the restaurant said, you know, well, we've moved out to a couple of the village pubs. Uh, you know, the, the offer we got for the property was too good. Oh, we'll they they earned the freeholds. Um and so they've moved on. Uh, but he promised to buy the book. And indeed, many people have because uh, Genesis Inquiry is a bit of a hit, let's say. Yeah, it's doing very well. It's getting some fantastic reviews. Unbelievable reviews. Yeah, just scan Amazon. I, I'd never read the like. And they're quite short as well, which I really mm. love. Think, I mean, the, my favourite one just says, read it. I mean, that's all you need to say, isn't it? Would I recommend this book? <laughs> you bet your bottom, I would. I don't think she used the word bottom, did she? Yeah. Backside, oh. was it backside? Oh, yeah. I think she used a different word on Twitter. <laughs> oh, right, maybe. No, no, on Amazon she's kept it clean. <laughs> I like that, yeah, different. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that was just one of the books. Obviously, we've mentioned Wayland Babes um, in this programme, which came out last week. Yeah. week before that was Genesis Inquiry. And the other books that we've had recently include... In October, so of course we've had Be Sure Your Sins by... Yes, um... by Harry Fisher. Um, and then we've got Harry's other book coming uh, uh, fairly soon. I'm, Way I'm beyond a bit the line. <laughs> the first, first um, Tuesday in November. Second well, Tuesday next week, in November. No, second Tuesday in November. It's um, Way Beyond the Lies. So okay, Harry's other two book. weeks time. Uh, that's true. And uh, we've also had uh, Fatal Trade by Brian Price as well. Yeah, and then the Swindle by the lovely Sue Shepherd in yeah. September. So, I mean, autumn. We, we knew autumn was going to be a, a hectic time for us, but it's been wonderful. Yeah, uh, just stopping you rattling the microphone. Oh, okay, sorry. So, yes, and we've still got, uh, we've also got Linda Hooper's Pact of Silence coming in November. We mentioned Blood Notes by uh, Linda Versha. And then we have, we actually have two books coming in December. Silenced by Jenny Ensor on the uh, first Tuesday in December. And the same day we're publishing our lovely Christmas anthology. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. I've, I've got the idea now for my for my Christmas tale, which I need to write. In the you next do before the I'm first. Away. Before the first. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Well, you know, did some research in Norfolk. That's a clue as to what was going on. Oh, there's a clue. There is a, a slight clue. What is the connection with Norfolk and Christmas? Yeah, absolutely. 
the other, you know, something caught my eye this morning, actually, and I was just flicking through the Guardian um, website, and there is a fantastic collection, a, a sort of photo gallery of uh, behind-the-scenes material from the making of train spotting. We're going back to the 90s for this. Yeah. And there is an awesome, the second item is, an, is a letter to the guy who wrote the screenplay from Irvin Welsh, who wrote the original book. Yeah. Uh, it's full of language. I couldn't possibly <laughs> repeat on the podcast. Um, but it's just a wonderful example of, uh, you know, a writer saying, well, I really like this. I think you, your choice on that is really good. I think, you know, the way that you're using uh, Renton to narrate some of the scenes is, is really clever. And I appreciate, you know, the fact is that film needs to be uh, a little quicker and tighter than than obviously my novel but yeah <laughs> uh, the dialogue doesn't work for me the characters sound like students class <laughs> students they don't sound like you know proper skanky junkies but that's true actually isn't it that is a good point yeah so they a lot do of, come across they, they came up quite clean you know yeah. and, and, and well obviously they use the c word a lot and f word and all that stuff but that's about as strong as it gets and a lot of the really um uh you know particular vernacular that that junkies would use in the edinburgh of that period has been stripped out and which if you i don't know if you've read train spotting no i haven't see this is one that i did try to read and i i did, I, I put it down not because it's not a good book but because of the 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 sort of the accuracy of the the language mm -hmm. and the, you know so he makes a really good point there uh, it's, it's a really good letter. It's really worth reading because I think, you know, it's, there is all this um, debate when someone signs the film rights and, you know, you pass on your book to the hands of a, of a director uh, and a screenwriter and producer and, and whatever. And the, the, the whole, you know, film production process can dramatically change the way that your, your book is viewed. But it's interesting that Irvin Welsh had the opportunity to to put his influence in in fact he appeared in the film uh very briefly as yes. the, and as he, as he says in this thing um he says oh, i was the worst actor of all time <laughs> but he did appear and he was on set a lot and uh, that's unusual for a film production to uh, to allow the writer anywhere near it because you know they can unduly well they can be disruptive um but uh yeah i i, I it's really fascinating because it's a film i love uh but there's so many interesting little snippets about you know kelly mcdonald who'd never acted before uh she was very young um she yeah, was, yeah she course, was very yeah. very young uh and um you know basically being terrified she was going to muck it up and actually she's one of the star moments of the whole film is her i suppose in a way though when you're when when it's like that for you you've got nothing to lose so you put everything you can into it and it doesn't matter if it goes wrong because you've got nothing to lose you've never done it before you've got no reputation to live up to so actually you perform better than you might otherwise so. yeah you might you know you take certainly probably take direction better than if mm. you, you know if you're a veteran who, who doesn't respect the process but um you know it or doesn't respect the opinion as the younger director that they're facing or whatever it might be but look it, it, it it's fascinating so look that out if you can yeah on the, on the guardian the uk newspaper uh, which I think presumably was published this weekend, that, that particular but photo, it's, photo. It's also interesting because it, in that letter, he is showing an appreciation that film is a different medium mm -hmm. to a book. 
and he's you know part of what he's saying is I know that you have to do this and it has to be like this but I still want to put my opinion to you that it's not quite in no uncertain terms yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Irvin Welsh is a friend of a friend um, of mine and uh, you know friend of the family kind of thing so I've heard a lot about what sort of guy he is uh, from them you know uh, this is um, my friend Clyde who long, you know lifelong friend really um, and whose father is lives in Edinburgh is a very well thought of uh, invented chainsaw sculpture and is the sort of master of it mm. um, and sells pieces for many many tens of thousands of pounds now having been a, 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 a forester before that uh, but yeah he and Evan Walsh are very very close so yeah, I've heard a lot of stories about the, about the guy, and he's authentic. Let's, let's put it that way. Oh, he's completely authentic, and yeah. that comes through in his writing. So Totally, totally. Well, look, we uh, we ought to wrap up the show uh, for this week. I know, so we could jabber for hours, couldn't we? We could, we could. We've been jabbering all weekend, and <laughs> it's been really, uh, you know, again, we'd like to thank Lynn for putting us up, Lynn the Bishop, uh, putting us up for a couple of nights, and it was just lovely to have those sort of conversations where we put the world to rights over some very, very good wine. Oh, we talked about all sorts, didn't we? We covered so much ground. And I miss that. I do miss that. Yeah, because, you know, we're together. We've got the kids. You know, we talk to the cat. But sometimes, (laughs) you know, the really... The big questions, as Ollie would put it on uh, the Genesis Inquiry, you don't you don't ever venture it. You know, you're just thinking about what the shopping list is to, to keep the cat happy or the kids. So... Yeah, it's been it's been a wonderful weekend. I feel very refreshed from it. I have to say, and I think same goes for you too. Yeah, definitely, I do feel refreshed. You know, change of perspective, getting out of the barn and getting out there, um, and it gives us new in- input and energy uh, for the uh, for the challenge of running Hobeck Books, which we of course love. And uh, we'd like to uh, recommend you to uh, have a look at our website if you haven't been there before: www.hobeck.net. And we've got, uh, uh, you know, so much content there, um, blogs and uh, obviously the details of all, all of our authors. Our shop is there as well. So uh, take a look. And if you subscribe, our competition is still running for a little bit longer. On the 31st of October, we'll be closing the entries for our latest competition. Yeah. All you have to do is subscribe and you're automatically entered. And you could be the lucky recipient of some gin, a Kindle Paperwhite, more ebooks than you could read. Yeah, some wonderful goods from Fitzbillies of Cambridge and uh, also some mugs with some brilliant um, cartoons from Quentin Blake. So it's a great prize and it's open to you if you subscribe to us at www.hobeck.net and join our mailing list. Well, that's it for us, I think, for the yeah. podcast book show for this week. Uh, fingers crossed we'll get the plan sorted out and we'll have Abia Mukherjee as our guest show number 42 but from myself adrian hobart and myself rebecca collins thank you so much for listening don't forget to subscribe to the podcast but for now we wish you a happy and creative week you've been listening to the hobcast from hobeck books with adrian hobart and rebecca collins you can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Hobcast.